Welcome back to another episode of A Gift from Adversity. My name is Julie Love. I'm your host. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to A Gift from Adversity. Today, we have an exciting guest. And before we introduce our guest, I want to introduce my book. It's called A Gift from Adversity, which is available on Amazon. And A Gift from Adversity is about my book and my life. And this is subtitled Overcoming Sexual Abuse, Domestic Violence, Bullying, and Homelessness. And after I published this book, a lot of people reached out to me and told me about their adversity. And I felt very compelled to share not only my story, but other people's adversities where they feel a little bit of stigma, but in the social media platform, I wanted to have a safe space where people can talk about the adversity and tools that they use to overcome, overcame, and also a gift that came from it. Today, I am recording Eliza Collins' show, and then she is from Providence, Rhode Island. Hi, Eliza. Thank you so much for being on A Gift from Adversity. Oh, thank you for having me, Jerry. I'm really excited to be here. Great. So, Eliza, can you tell our audience your name and what you do? Yes, I am Eliza Collins. And as you said, I'm based in Providence, Rhode Island. And I am a burnout recovery coach and integrative wellness practitioner. And what is your social media handle and a website? My website is www.theburnoutwitch.com, and you can find me on Instagram and TikTok at The Burnout Witch. And what can people find out on your website? They can find out a little bit more about what I do. So um, the bulk of what I do is coaching, but I'm also an acupuncturist, Chinese herbalist, and functional medicine practitioner, and I also have a certification in hypnosis. So I utilize all of these different things as a part of my program offerings for people. Great. And how is your business going? It's going really, really well. And I just want before we dive into our main topic, um, I'm just curious about what you do and how do you get your clients? Is that like word of mouth or social media? How do people contact you? Word of mouth is a big one. Um, referrals tend to be the biggest source for this type of thing because once people experience burnout or from the acupuncture side of things have a positive experience with acupuncture, they tend to want to tell other people about it. And so word of mouth really is the biggest way that I tend to find clients. Do you do the service virtually or in person? Acupuncture services are in person, but my hypnosis functional medicine and coaching are all virtual. So I work with people from all over the United States and around the world. Nice. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. How did you come up with this business name idea, like Burnout Witch? <laughs> that was actually uh, something that a colleague of mine came up with. So my friend and colleague, Caitlin Donovan, who is also a burnout recovery expert, um, had me on her podcast and my episode dropped on Halloween. And one of the other things that I do as a part of my um, service offerings is tarot card reading. So I integrate that into what I do as well. 
And she was trying to figure out a title name for the episode. And she said, what do you think about the burnout witch? And I said, oh my gosh, that is 100% me. I love it. Let's do it. And I said, I'm going to get the URL for that, you know, like the website domain. And she said, I think you should do that. And so I did that day and I absolutely loved it. And so when I really started to focus on burnout recovery um, as the sort of thing that I'm pursuing to do now um, with the bulk of my time, that seemed like the natural progression to take on that, uh, that title. So do you work with clients who, like what kind of clients do you work with? What kind of problems do clients carry that you help? It's really primarily burnout. That's the, the major thing that we tend to address specifically with my type of coaching. And so um, people who are in jobs who are burnt out, um, I'm an entrepreneur. And so I'm very comfortable and familiar with entrepreneurial burnout, which is something that in the realm of burnout, you don't hear about a whole lot. Usually burnout is talked about for people who are in corporate jobs or things like that. And there's not really a whole lot of information for you know, entrepreneurs or solo business owners. So that's one of the places that I specialize. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. So Eliza, um, let's talk about your adversity. Would you mind to share your adversity with our audience? What happened? Yeah, absolutely. So the most sort of recent manifestation of it was in 2019 when I experienced burnout myself. But people who are prone to burnout tend to have kind of a lifetime of various patterns and coping mechanisms and things like that, that build up to creating a sort of culture around them that is ripe for burnout. So for me, my biological mother passed away when I was 13 months old. So I was just over a year old and I never got to know her. And as a result of that, that really changed my worldview and how I looked at the world as I grew up. And so I became a perfectionist. I became somebody who did not understand that they were worthy of love simply because they existed. I felt like I had to earn it, which is not something that my family, you know, my dad and my my stepmom and my brother and everybody instilled in me. They they loved me and they accepted me. But it was something that my little brain just kind of attached to is I I need to be someone or I need to do something in order to be loved in order to be praised in order to be accepted. And so as I grew up, I became an overachiever. I put a lot of stress on myself. I had to get A's. Nobody told me I had to get A's. My parents wouldn't have punished me if I had gotten a B, but I needed to do that. And so it set up this lifetime of chronic stress and anxiety and depression. And I had had several depressive episodes through my 20s. I didn't realize probably until my late 20s or early 30s that I was actually an anxious person. I thought everybody was kind of like that. So I discovered anxiety as I got older. And when I was running my business, all of those characteristics and all of those personality traits came with me. So I had to do everything really well. If I you know, did an acupuncture treatment and the person came back the next week and they said, mm, I didn't really feel much of a difference. I didn't immediately look around and go, okay, you know, what, what did you eat? Did you exercise too hard? You know, did, what happened between last treatment and this treatment that may have kind of unwound that a little bit? I immediately thought that it was something I did wrong. So I was putting immense amounts of intense pressure on myself. 
And in 2019, a company that I contract with as an independent contractor who referred a lot of business to me, they stopped referring outside of the company. So it wasn't something with to do with me personally. They, they just kind of stopped referring out to any other independent contractors. And that took my business down to about half of what it was. And I didn't think that I was actually going to be able to survive that. I thought I was going to have to close my business. So I reached out to my friend that I had mentioned, who is the burnout coach, because she had run very successful acupuncture practices when she lived in Europe. And I said, how did you do this? And she said, I actually burnt out doing that and you're burnt out and we're going to fix that. So I started working with her and through the process of burnout recovery, we realized that there are just not enough people who are offering these types of services. So in the process of my own recovery, I utilized acupuncture and functional medicine and all of these other things. Um, so that's how I got into the role that I'm in today. So thank you so much um, for sharing your adversity. And I'm sorry about the loss of your mom at such a young age. Do you remember, or you don't, Oh, you don't remember, but um, do you have any memory of her? My parents, when I say my parents, my dad and my stepmom, we just call my stepmom mom. So it sounds kind of weird and confusing for people. Um, they saved a lot of pictures. They saved clothes. They saved jewelry. Um, I have journals of hers and, you know, letters that she wrote and things like that. And um, we actually had some audio tapes of her voice. So um, when I was older, they gave those to me as a present. So I actually got to hear her voice, which was really cool because even though I don't have memories of her, it sounded familiar to me, which was really wonderful. Well, very interesting. How did she pass at such a young age? Um, she actually just got sick. Um, and it was like a respiratory cold that progressed very, very quickly. And the doctors couldn't get ahead of it. So she ended up passing away from something called um, septic shock, which is where your body just kind of starts to shut down. And I apologize if there's a cat meowing in the background. <laughs> no worries, no worries. Um, that is very um, heartbreaking. And I don't know, I'm a mom of two, and then I almost died after 50s of my daughter's birth. Um, by spinal fluid leakage, and uh, they had to do operation. It was really painful. I lost consciousness completely, and I also had two miscarriages. One, I almost died in the bathroom. So had I not had blood transfusion and had, if the EMT didn't come, like my son would be motherless since age of four, also. But anyways, um, it's very, very heartbreaking to hear the mothers don't make it and then have to leave the children at such a young age. And um, I just don't understand how, you know, it completely affected your life in the way that you are, um, you became overachiever or like, you know, have stress or depression. Like, how can you describe that to people who really don't understand the loss of your mom at age, like, you know, 13 months can affect the whole, like, you know, long, 
have a long-term effect. So that's actually really interesting. Something that I learned um, when I got my hypnosis training is that from the ages of zero to about six years old, um, the human brain is in what we call an alpha brainwave state, which is the same kind of brainwave that we have when we go into REM sleep, which is a learning pattern. It's a learning brainwave and there's sort of no buffer. So when we go about our day-to-day lives, we're in, I think, beta brainwaves. And that allows us to kind of differentiate and pay attention to something and then switch our attention to something else. And if we get information that kind of doesn't make sense, that's when our brain says, hang on a minute, like, let me, let me think about this and let me process this. From the ages of zero to six, you don't have that kind of processing. So everything that you experience just goes straight in. And your brain creates connections around it without a whole lot of other context because you don't have critical thinking skills to be able to say like, oh, like my mother passed away. Of course I feel this, or of course I would feel that. I was just a one-year-old who all of a sudden didn't have a mom and there was no critical thinking capacity to understand why. So when that happens, your brain makes up a story because our brains like stories and they, they like to understand, they like structure and they like these things to be very clean. So my brain kind of created this over time from other cues in the environment. And again, it's not anything that anybody instilled in me that, you know, you have to get A's or you have to behave or you have to do this or we're not going to love you. But at an age where I couldn't understand anything, someone who was supposed to be there and love me and support me and care for me just went away. So that was all a one-year-old brain could process. And I didn't understand those things until much later when I got into therapy. So for growing up, it's very interesting. I've never heard of this alpha brainwave from like the age zero to six. I never heard of it. And then when you are growing up without your mom, uh, when did the stepmom come into your life? Uh, She lived in our same town. So we had known her for a really long time. She was a friend of the family. And then she and my dad got married, I think I was five. So it was about four years later. So you were raised by a single dad for a while. Uh, we had a lot of family support and my stepmom was also a part of that as one of those people who took care of us. So my, my brother and I were raised by family and friends, but yeah, my dad was a single dad for about four years. Well, I'm a single mom of two, so kudos to your father. Um, how many ever years or months, it's just the hardest thing to go through that you are the caretaker and the breadwinner. And it's just so hard to be that position. And especially like when the parents don't understand about the mental health or effect, such as your case is, you know, zero to six, who knew about alpha brainwave? I didn't even know until now that I had my share of trauma experience with my family and then you know sexual abuse and then earliest memories of seeing my dad beating my mom like around age four like I think 
what I can kind of understand is that one time when I was um, doing my therapy session, that my mom kicked me out when I was 18. And then, but I was trying to really um, angelize her. And uh, one of the things that is interesting, what you said about making up the perfect story, is that because of um, the situation that I witnessed when I was maybe four before six years old, where he, she was extremely getting abused, that I just maybe made up the story that this is okay. I, I have no idea how. But then um, whenever I was at the therapy session and talked about my father, who's the main perpetrator in my case, that I started to justify what she has done. However, sometimes the counselor said, mm -mm, no, that was not right. But then I would come up with excuses for her. So it was just interesting. And she said, you cannot love a person without um, accepting their faults. And then like you cannot love a statue. They're not perfect. So it was a very interesting experience. How did you, when you discovered this information about the alpha brainwave, um, like a zero to six, where you are basically not having this critical thinking and discovered your like level of ex expectation and achievement and then stress like how did you digest that information that for me was a really liberating moment because i had spent so much time kind of learning about the human body and the human brain up until that point so when i actually learned that about sort of the the brain state that we're in that was in 2018, everything just kind of fell into place. A lot of the other work that I had done prior to that in terms of like therapy and, and that type of thing, a lot of that made sense in a way that it was like, oh, okay. And it almost gave me permission to like stop being a perfectionist. When I got into my burnout recovery, it was just like, oh, okay. Like this, this is where that comes from. This is where that's sourced because it was one of those things where it's like how like how is this even a part of my personality why is this a part of my personality and when i understood that my brain was almost doing that to protect me it gave me a lot more it allowed me to give myself a lot more grace for the way that i had been you know kind of growing up into to getting here so it was it was a really pivotal moment in my healing process and when you were, I don't know if you remember at all, but when you were that little and then when you didn't have your mom, like, you know, did you have, do you remember some of the feelings? Like, you know, maybe like, you know, that you miss your mom or like, you know, or maybe even growing up a little bit older in a stage that you realize that you don't have your mom, like, you know, maybe you have a stepmom, but, you know, the biological mom, um, you know, was unfortunately, you know, gone at such a young age. Did you have any memories of like, you know, struggles growing up? When I was much younger, I was probably in maybe like third or fourth grade. So probably like yeah. seven or eight years old. Um, it didn't really register with me. It was just like, oh, everybody else has their mom and my mom died, but I have my stepmom, whom we call mom. So I just, I have that mom. 
And as I got older, probably as a teenager, 14, 15, 16, it wasn't so much that I missed my biological mom, but I was curious about her because we look very, very much alike. My dad would always say that I have certain mannerisms. Um, when I listened to recordings of her voice, it sounds a little bit like me and the way that she says certain things with like a certain intonation, I say the same thing in the same tone or I'll make the same face. She used to make this face when she was, it wasn't like an annoy, but it was just like, oh, come on, I make that face and it looks very much the same. So there was definitely a curiosity about that, but I don't really remember at those ages that like real like longing you know, um, as a, as a little kid, it just sort of didn't register to me. So when you realize like you are like overachiever or you have to get A and stuff, and then that you are basically giving yourself a pressure, like how did it, how, how, how was it like to be in that position when you're growing up and then really kind of giving a lot of expectation and didn't know why but you were kind of maybe struggling or having extra anxiety how can you describe that to our audience oh man that that probably didn't hit i definitely didn't feel it in high school i just thought that was normal um so it didn't really start affecting me really negatively until I was in my thirties and I was running my business up until that point. I just thought that that was my personality type and that's kind of how I existed in the world. And there are some people who are more anxious and some people who are less anxious. And this was just me. And I knew other people who were high achievers and perfectionists. And so I really didn't think that much about it, but those coping mechanisms and those habits started to break down when I was running my business because you can't be everything all the time to everyone. There's just not enough, you know, energy in, in your, your body and your brain and enough hours in the day to do that. So, excuse me, that was when those coping mechanisms really started to break down. And when those particular types of habits and patterns stopped serving me. So when you had kind of realization, like how old were you? exactly like 30s <laughs> uh 37 okay 37 yeah when you realized that like you know how did you feel did you feel more depressed or kind of like oh my god like you know i felt so relieved especially because i i actually didn't have that realization when my coach was the one that pointed it out to me she said you're burnt out and we need to work on that when she put a name to it again it was that sort of just like Oh my God, there, this is something, this isn't just this nebulous feeling of, of failure and exhaustion and depression. Like it's, it's not even necessarily depression. It's burnout because burnout and depression are two very similar, but still separate things. So you can be burnt out and not depressed. You can be depressed and not burnt out, or you can have both burnout and depression, which I was definitely burnt out and certainly had a little bit of depression at the time. Um, but it, it gave a name to my experience, which was really meaningful because I felt for such a long time that I was just kind of drowning on my own with this. And it made me realize that I'm not, there's this whole 
world of people who have the same feelings as me. So it was, it was really impactful. I um, just wanted to comment a little bit about drown, drowning on my own. So in Japanese, we say jigo jitoku. So that's the Japanese word, which means you are kind of choking yourself on your own and sacrificing your own. And then um, I think without realizing so many people, regardless of, you know, loss of the parents, um, the trauma, um, a lot of us do that. Why do you think we do that? It's hard to say. I think it's a little bit different for everybody. Everybody has their own experience, but I think in some ways, some of it has to do with the fact that culturally speaking, um, at least from my experience with like Westernized culture, we don't talk about grief openly. We don't uh, support people through it, really support them. Grief tends to make people very uncomfortable. In the last hundred years or so, we've really sanitized the process of death. You know, that happens at hospitals or in nursing homes or kind of behind closed doors. And so particularly with that type of grief, I think it's very difficult for people to experience it in a way that feels fully supported. And so we feel like we need to control ourselves because we don't want to make other people uncomfortable. And I think that's the case in a lot of circumstances, not just with grief, is we don't want to burden other people with what we're going through. And so we just kind of hold it in and we're like, it's fine. Everything's fine. I'm fine. And no one's fine. <laughs> Hopefully some people are fine. But in those instances, we don't always know that we should reach out. We don't know what resources are there. Sometimes people are very scared to reach out and be told no. So it can be very difficult. And at that point, you you try and control anything and everything that you can, which is mostly yourself to the best of your ability. So just to let the audience know, there's not in Massachusetts, in Arlington, there's not a nonprofit. I don't know if you ever heard of it children's room have you ever heard of children's room no i haven't so one of my neighbors lost her mother at nine years old and she witnessed her death and she was the one who had to call the 911 stop mm. at 90 years old uh black clots was the cause of the death then um there's an organization called children's room which i as a rotarian we had a guest speaker uh, before the pandemic and then um, two staff members from the children's room came and spoke with us about the grief process basically what they do is they support children who um, lost their parents to gather uh, in this like pink room like the like, really um, welcoming room and then paint together and then just without just like really digging into it um, just kind of have friendship over this um, unfortunate bonding uh, experiences that they have. So it's like a support group in a way, the grief process. Um, and also, I think um, what you said about sanitizing the death is very interesting. In Japan, what we do sometimes, um, well, mo most of us, we go um, 
cleaning. So like we see, like I, I remember my um, grandfather being burned and um, pick up their bones with two chopsticks and then put it in the jar. And then we have like this whole process of death. And then, um, well, in America as well. But like, how, why, why would you say that about sanitizing and then behind, like, can you explain? Yeah, so I, I was an emergency medical technician for um, three years before I got into medicine, um, doing what I do now. And so I worked at a lot of hospitals and a lot of um, assisted living facilities, long-term care facilities, hospice facilities. And, you know, a hundred or so years ago, people would pass away in their family homes and you would show the body in the family home. And it was, it was kind of a part of the process. The family was usually often involved in it. Whereas now people will go to a hospital, they'll go to a long-term care facility, they'll go to hospice. Sometimes like families can't deal with that. It's not something that we see in day-to-day culture. It's very privatized now. And so it becomes something that is very outside of day-to-day culture. Um, and I think as a result of that, it, it makes it harder for people to deal with as a culture, as a community, um, because it's dealt with in very singular ways a lot of times now. So do you think you'd be better if it was shared openly more? Um, I think it would be better if people had the ability to talk about that a little more freely. Um, and we, as a, as a collective, learn to be able to hold space for that kind of grief without, make, without it making us uncomfortable. It can be really hard for a lot of people to do. Understandably, it's a hard topic. Is you wish growing up that you had that kind of platform and that if you had that access to that, like say children's room or like you know, some of the platform that you were able to um, get maybe guidance when you were young, do you think that would have made a little bit difference? It's really hard to say because at the time that she passed away, that was in 1983, we didn't really know about you know, psychology and, you know, children's psychology, developmental psychology, the way that we do now. And other than that, I was a very well-adjusted kid. You know, I was on the anxious side, but like, I didn't have a lot of behavioral problems I that I remember. I don't remember acting out a whole lot. I, you know, I wanted to behave. I wanted to be a good kid. And so there weren't any obvious red flags that I think would have made my parents say, we need to sit her down with a counselor or a therapist or sort something out. I, I didn't express that way. You know, nothing like that was manifested in my behavior. So there was really no impetus to get me in to talk to a counselor or a therapist when it didn't look like I needed it. So even if that had been available, it may not have been something that my parents utilized, which, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. We can't say how the, how anybody would have behaved. But I, I'm really not sure. So I feel the same way, Eliza, that like say had I had those access when I was, you know, going through the PTSD abuse uh, if I had an advocacy service or DCF that prevented me to experience this extreme abuse in like 80s where nobody really believed that this was happening in the household. I, I don't know the comparison because I didn't have that. But 
what I can tell you, like what you said nowadays, there are more resources and then there are more mental health understanding, and especially after the pandemic. Like we have a lot more sympathy and understanding of the depression or uh, any psychological effect. And then um, this word psychosomatic, where the fear manifests in different ways. And I think that we are getting smarter and we are getting um, more um, information and tools to overcome the challenges. So now let's actually shift our questions to um, tools that you use to overcome your adversity that worked. And before you give me your answer, I just wanted to really appreciate you coming to the show, sharing your adversity, and all my guests who came and they did the same. And I'm very proud that we, as a collective, that we are vulnerable and brave to be able to share this. And my favorite part of the show is to be able to share the tools that worked for individuals to overcome these adversities because a lot of times people will say, oh, jury, just get a counselor or just, you know, go to therapy. And it's not that easy. And even if I did, if I, even when I had six years of intense counseling every week and EMDR sessions, I had a ton of different modalities and acupuncture as well. But everybody has unique ways to overcome this and as a human being as a collective i think it's important that we are able to share this so what are the best tools that you use to overcome your adversity i think it's really great that you point out that like you didn't have just one because that's that was instrumental in my recovery and i've found that recommending multiple tools or multiple providers for people tends to get them the best results because one person is not going to have all of the answers to what you're going through. And if they tell you that they do, they're lying to you. So be very, very wary of people who say, Oh, I can, I can do all of it. I can fix everything. Um, So the first thing that I started with, well, really the first thing that I started with was therapy. So I got into therapy when I was 19, um, when I had my first depressive episode, And that was incredible. I had a really amazing therapist. She was really fabulous. I worked on and off with her for probably about 10 years. Uh, Maybe actually, no, it was when I moved to Rhode Island. So 13, 14 years. Um, I worked with her pretty consistently throughout my 20s, um, my early 20s. And then I would kind of go back in for tune-ups. If I felt like I was going through a rough patch, I would talk to her. Um, When I moved to Rhode Island, I started seeing a new therapist um, just because I kind of wanted a face-to-face. I had been doing telehealth with my old therapist. Um, And I, with her, I did something called internal family systems, which is sometimes referred to as parts work. So if, um, if you're saying I'm feeling really sad, there is a part of you that is feeling really sad, but it's not the whole you. There are other parts of you that can feel joy or anger or frustration or, you know, humor and things like that. So talking to a part of me as opposed to identifying with whole emotions made them a lot more easy to deal with. It made them a lot more digestible. A part of me is sad, but sadness is not who I am today, basically. So that was really huge. And then when I finally like officially got into burnout recovery, 
the first thing that I did was coaching uh, with my coach. And some of the stuff that we worked on were boundaries, which was a huge one. And that's one of the big things that we address in burnout recovery. So we looked at where was my energy going? Where was I putting my focus? You know, what was I focusing on that I didn't need to, that was taking more of my time and my energy than I, I had to deal with. Um, we worked on some of my perfectionism. We worked on ways for me to, you know, reduce the amount of intensity that I needed to give to any certain thing at any time. And as my mindset started to shift, I ended up working with a functional medicine colleague to look at my gut microbiome and any vitamin and mineral deficiencies that I had to kind of optimize my body to the best of my ability. And that's a bit of a longer process. I'm still doing that. So I had leaky gut. I had small intestine bacterial overgrowth. Um, I had a terrible vitamin D deficiency. We live in the Northeast and a lot of people get that. So I took some supplements, um, short courses of supplements to kind of correct some of that stuff. And um, I'm still kind of exploring some of the chronic underlying health issues. Um, one of the things that I discovered this past November is that I have chronic Lyme and most Western uh, biomedical tests had missed that. So that was something that I diagnosed myself with on a functional medicine test that I ran on myself. So that's how I found it. Um, and I got certified in hypnosis in 2018. And that was also a really, really big deal for me because it taught me how to get into a state where I can actually affect change in my brain much more efficiently and much more quickly. So as I went through my own burnout recovery, I started utilizing all of these things that I had also been trained in and realized that, hey, like I can do this for other people. This is really cool. So some of the tools that I used, I, I know, and that's kind of my wheelhouse and my expertise so that's how I got into burnout coaching myself. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. It's very interesting that um, you have not only discovered um, yourself through these different modalities and then healed you yourself, but also um, turning into the business where you can heal other people and share. Yeah, yeah, that's been kind of the best part of that for me. There's a great book um, called The Body Keeps the Score by Dr. Bessel van der Kolk. And it's about how we hold trauma in the body um, and the way that, you know, emotional and psychological trauma actually manifests as like pain or fibromyalgia or, you know, various other things. Um, and one of his colleagues has a, a, there's a great quote from one of his colleagues in it that uh, I think it was, all research is me-search. So anytime we get interested in something where, you know, we, we get really invested in it, a lot of times it's because we're in the process of trying to heal ourselves. So the ability to take that, you know, and do that successfully and get yourself on that own course and then be able to offer that to the world as somebody who really understands that process has been really meaningful for me. It's very interesting. I've never heard of research is me search. Yeah, that, that quote really resonated with me. I cannot remember the name of the person who said it, but I know it was in that book. I think it's really interesting to me that I felt really alone going through my trauma and writing my book was really healing 
not only like sharing my story, but on top of it, really sharing my story in public setting as a motivational speaker or doing this podcast is starting to make me feel that I am not alone, which really my goal to have this podcast and having you as a guest today and having other guests on my show that people should not feel crazy or isolated or alone going through these adversities. And I like the research equal me search because I felt like I was alone researching about me search and then uh, I couldn't find answers most of the time. And it took me so long to get to where I am that I couldn't even say the word father without breaking to you know, tears when I was in 20s. So it's very interesting conversation. Yeah, it's very, very curious as to sort of how everything kind of comes around. You know, you've had this incredible ability to now create a platform to make sure that people understand that they're not alone. You know, the type of work that you're doing is the type of work that the world needs for this type of thing. Well, thank you so much for saying that and thank you for being a part of it. So, Eliza, what is a gift you would say that came from your adversity? That's a really good question. There's a level of openness and curiosity that I have about life and my experiences moving forward where I'm not as reactive anymore. Um, I don't, I don't catastrophize anymore as much. Um, my, I think when people go through trauma, it's very easy. Anytime a situation comes up, it's, it's, you're, you're looking for like the bad thing or you're looking for like, Oh, what could go wrong? And there's kind of this constant state of anticipation and it's almost like you're living in fight or flight and the process of going through the adversity that I've had, you know, since childhood and kind of popping out the other side of this, I'm not completely healed. I think the, the, you know, lifelong process of healing is that we're always learning about ourselves, but I have a curiosity about it now that when things happen, it's like, Oh, I can, I can stop and I can take a beat and I can breathe and say, what is happening? What might happen? I don't have to freak out about this. I don't have to stress out about this. I'm not living in that place hundred percent of the time. I have a lot more control over how I show up in the world. And if you had asked me that two or three years ago, I would not have pegged that as an aspect of my personality. So, you know, when people ask me, how long does burnout recovery take? It's anywhere from three months to two years is generally kind of the timeline. Some people might be a little quicker. Some people might take a little longer. You know, when you say two years, people are like, oh my God, two years. It sounds long, but the amount of things that can change, the way in which your life can change in two years is a complete transformation. It's a total 180. So... I think that my curiosity for life and, and stress and anything that the world kind of throws at me is a huge gift that I couldn't fully embrace before this. 
Well, thank you so much for sharing that, Eliza. And I really appreciate you um, sharing the adversity and tools and the gift tonight. Would you please share your last word with our audience? My last word. If you are watching this, if you are listening to this, you are not alone. There's a huge community of people out there who want to care for you and support you through whatever you're going through. So please make sure to follow Jury. You can always follow me or find me if you have questions, but don't try and hack this alone. Don't try and do this alone. We are here for you. That's so beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing that. And then thank you so much for the shout out. I really appreciate it. So that's it for the show tonight. And thank you everyone for listening to A Gift from Adversity or watching. And we will see you next episode. And thank you, Eliza, again for coming to the show. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure.